podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Wednesday, November the 4th, and we are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, LibertyShield.com. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com. I am joined today by Lee Scott, up and running with your new, your new internet service. <laughs> Just about. We had a, a lot of different work out in the street last week. So last week, from a working from home perspective, was a bit of a nightmare. I think I, I missed about 80% of the meetings that I was supposed to be in, unfortunately, but all good now. Well, that's, it's never ideal. We're, I'm kind of in the same situation here. Luckily, we've only been able to have satellite broadband where I live <laughs> up to now. So the fiber installation, while it's massively delayed and causing chaos for anyone trying to drive up our laneway, it hasn't actually affected my service. Um, it's been a few weeks since we talked. So has anything popped out to you over the last couple of weeks as either a surprise, a disappointment, or just an interesting little narrative that you think could unfold uh, as the season progresses? I think it's probably worth, from that point of view, talking a lot about I mean, I know that we do quite a lot, but Liverpool have been interesting. Um they obviously switch from uh, a game, I can't remember the exact game, a couple of weeks ago now, where a game seems to be blending into one, but they switch from a 4-3-3 to a 4-2-3-1 was certainly interesting, and now the, the apparent decision to play Diogo Jota in the, in the front line, with obviously Roberto Firmino getting a rest last night, we're recording this on Thursday, and Wednesday, sorry, so last night against Atalanta, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on for Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool at the moment, and I would say that they're certainly a team who's going to be worth keeping an eye on going forward. Obviously, it's probably a, a reaction as much as anything else to the injury problems with Virgil van Dijk being ruled out and, and all of these separate issues that are currently ongoing and the, the need to play Jordan Henderson in a slightly different role if he plays as the 6 and a 4-3-3 obviously that changes the dynamic in the midfield and everything just seems to be, to be. I mean at the same time they're still at the moment I think sitting pretty at the, the top of the Premier League so it obviously can't be affecting them that badly but it was certainly noteworthy uh, the, the other thing that I think I've found quite interesting over the last couple of weeks has been the performance of Arsenal under Mikel Arteta and obviously at the weekend their their performance against Manchester United was certainly worth talking about. Yeah, so let's dig into that, that performance by Arsenal against Manchester United. Uh, they come away with a 1-0 win, uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang uh, getting the goal from the penalty spot. But there was a lot of positives but also some negatives about the Arsenal performance. I think it's safe to say it was pretty much all negatives in terms of the United performance. <laughs> but that Arsenal performance, there's there's signs of a real plan from Arteta. At the on the flip side, there are some concerning trends with how they play, their lack of creativity, and just how passive they seem to be in general play. Yeah, I think I think that the biggest issue for me is that lack of creativity as they move forward in the final third. I mean, you're absolutely right. There is 
a very definite plan from Arsenal. It's, it's clear to see throughout the team. They, they obviously progress the ball from the back. They look quickly in ball progression and, and move the ball safely into the centre of the pitch. And then from there, it just seems to, to lose something. I tweeted um, the other day after watching back the match that um, as much as I admire the way that Arsenal are playing out, because that's the kind of football that I like and I enjoy and, and that I would play if I was a coach, that's probably the same kind of thing that I would try to do. But they're just so passive at times with their... I mean, the, the whole point of playing out from the back, for, for any listener who's not, not sure of why teams do it and why it's something that, that people like Pep Guardiola and Michael Arteta and, and Marcelo Bielsa are so, so intent on, is to make sure that you progress the ball cleanly from the back into the middle third, then the final third. Because if you progress the ball cleanly without having to force a pass or having to hit a long ball that has a low percentage chance of success, then you're in a much better position structurally to then go and create something further forward. So that's why you see Arsenal moving the ball from left to right across the back line so often. But the whole point of this is that you're looking to move the ball from left to right to open up the possibility to go vertically. There's no point in just passing the ball from goalkeeper to left-sided centre-back and the, the middle centre-back back to the left-sided centre-back. There's no point in those those patterns unless you're moving the opposition. The whole idea is that you move the opposition and as soon as that passing lane becomes clear to play the ball cleanly in the midfield, you should take it. But at the weekend against Manchester United, I think I counted four occasions when there was a vertical passing option either into Thomas Partey or into Mohamed Elneny in the centre midfield, and they didn't take the vertical pass. They, they, they kept recycling the ball across and, and looking. I don't know whether they're looking for the perfect opportunity to play vertically, but they just seem to be missing so many of those opportunities. And it led to them being far more passive than they had to be because as soon as you break the press with that first vertical pass into the midfield, that's when your team's then away because you've taken out the the line of press from the opposition. They're now behind the ball and having to recover their positions and you've got space to then move forward. And that's what Arteta's trying to do. But whether it's uh, his team are at the moment are a little bit slow to, to see those opportunities or whether they don't quite, trust the technical capacity of the likes of El Neni to receive and then play in the centre of the pitch. There's just something that's not quite there. And much as it all looked very pretty at times for Marcel, they still need to find that that edge, I think, that they really need to add to their game. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, teams that pass the ball along the defensive line to to draw that press. And that we see Liverpool and City and Leeds and others do that regularly. They'll pass the ball left to right along the defensive line just to draw one attacker. That's all you're looking for. Get that one attacker to step forward, break from his position, and then put the ball into his position for a free man. Progress the ball into that space. With Arsenal, like there were moments when Kieran Tierney was passing the ball to Gabriel and Gabriel was passing it straight back to him when there was no Manchester United player within 15 yards of them. And as well as ignoring the opportunities to progress the ball with the pass into midfield, I thought there were a number of occasions where Arsenal ignored the opportunity for one of the back three to step out and carry the ball into a more advanced position. Because we know Kieran Tierney can carry the ball very, very well. He's a very good attacking left back when he plays there. And I thought there was a number of opportunities where he did pick the ball up in space when United had pressed 
to one side. The ball had been switched across to him, and he had that opportunity to carry the ball into central areas, into central midfield. And instead, he went for like a simple ball to the left wing back, who was having to come back to meet the ball and then just give it back to him, which allowed United to recover. I felt there was a lack of bravery from Arsenal at times. Too much too much of a rigid structure. Like, this is where I play, and this is the area I'm told to cover. I'm not going to step out of there. And I really thought United were there to be punished at times because I thought their press was sloppy and uncoordinated. I thought we saw United's midfield against Leipzig look very, very good. but against Arsenal, it looked quite leggy, quite jaded. It didn't seem to have the type of energy you would want. And yet Arsenal didn't try and punish them in that area. No, I think you're right. Just to touch upon your point, first of all, about central defenders stepping out with the ball, that is a very, very good point. And that's something that at Liverpool, for example, we see Virgil van Dijk doing all the time. He's very good at stepping into the midfield and possession of the ball. And if the other team aren't pressing you, if they're content to sit in a deeper block, then stepping forward in possession of the ball as a central defender is one very good way of making an opposition defender break out from their defensive structure to come and engage you. And then that obviously creates space that you can play around and play into to try to break down the defensive structure. It's interesting, you talked about Kieran Tierney, and absolutely he's a player who can drive forward in those positions. But Gabriel as well, last year at Lille, I watched him quite a lot in Lille. I wrote a couple of scout reports on him for different places, and and he came up in a couple of reports that I did as part of our consultancy as well. And, and Gabriel was somebody who would step forward in the midfield and possession the ball and then look for that diagonal switch that he liked quite a lot for Lille last season. So they, they've certainly got the players. And I think you're right, it, it comes down to the fact that they are giving very definite instructions by Arteta that this is the way that we build out, these are the patterns of play that we use, and they just seem to be a little bit unwilling, if you like, to step away from that. I think it's fair to say that although Arsenal, again, they looked very good, they created more, they were better going forward, their their passing patterns looked far better than Manchester United's. Manchester United were a massive letdown this match. I Mm. watched the, the Leipzig game last week, and I'll be honest, I fully expect Leipzig to come away with the victory in that match and and Manchester United just swatted them away. The difference, I think, was that uh, they changed the midfield structure slightly from that game to this game. So against Leipzig, McTominay sat at the base of the midfield diamond and as limited as he is on the ball, he is very active off the ball in terms of his willingness to go and block and track runners and to work hard and in this game, they played Fred in that position, obviously looking to dictate the play a little bit more with his perhaps better passing than McTominay. But all that it meant was that Thomas and Thomas Partey and Mohamed Elneny for Arsenal, who should have been outnumbered in the midfield, they were able to dominate because McTominay looked lost. Pogba yeah. drifted in and out of the game. And, and Fred is a liability if you give him too much time on the ball in that position. So... Again and again and again, we saw Mason Greenwood having to drop back towards the midfield to try to to try to press the ball and make something happen, which means that an attacking transition where they should have had two forwards and Rashford and Greenwood were able to split onto different sides of the pitch to, to threaten the defensive line. Time and time again, they weren't able to do that because Greenwood was caught too deep. I just think that it feels like the kind of game where Solskjaer has tried to tinker tactically and it just hasn't worked for them. I think that 
Arsenal looked far better. They, they more than deserved their victory. But United were so incredibly passive throughout the game when, when Arsenal had the ball. They, they just looked to kind of sit off and allow Arsenal to pass through them. I think that there wasn't enough pressure, that there wasn't enough intent when Manchester United did turn over the ball in transition. And, and I think that there are real question marks now that are starting to arise over the midfield for United, perhaps more than we've seen recently. When I think that there's real questions as to whether Pogba should still be included in this type of game because out of possession, he gives you so little. Yeah. Um, just on finally on Arsenal, um, looking at their starting 11, you would say they're probably happy enough with Leno. He's a, he's a decent goalkeeper. They're very happy with Gabriel. He's, he's been a, 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 an exceptional signing so far. Maybe it may be a little bit fortunate to stay on the pitch in this one. They're definitely happy with Kieran Tierney. You look across that midfield, but but the, the position Rob Holding played is the one they will want to upgrade on. Now, they do already own William Saliba. You would assume in a 3-4-3, that is his position long-term, assuming he develops. Now, he is very good at progressing the ball from the back, so that could help there. Bellerin and Saka as wing-backs, you'd imagine they're happy with that. Tomas has been brilliant since arriving it is that other position, that position that El Nani played. We've seen Sabayas there. We've seen Xhaka uh, there. Sabayas is a naturally creative player, but for some reason it doesn't really translate when he plays in the midfield too, or indeed when he plays for Arsenal at all, really. So you'd imagine that is the one position that they will have somebody earmarked for for next summer to go in and just add that creative nature to that team to become the pathway through midfield, somebody for the the defenders to aim for when they want to play out from the back. Whether it's Hasimauer, I don't know, but that's obviously the name they were linked with in the summer. And up front, they're, they're probably very happy. It is just a matter of developing Saliba and sorting that position out and then seeing where you stand because if the creativity is still an issue at that point, and you've pretty much got the 11 you wanted, then your issue is obviously in the tactical approach. On United, I mean, there was nothing good to like about this performance for me. When you play a diamond, you really need your width to come from your fullbacks. And while Aaron Wan-Bissaka and Luke Shaw are good footballers who offer a lot in certain aspects... Providing wit and getting forward is not really their bag. You're also looking to get creativity from those fullbacks. I mean, the most famous team to play a diamond in the last 20 years is obviously Carlo Ancelotti's Milan team, who had Cafu at right back and Paolo Maldini at left back. Maybe the best right and left back ever, depending on your preferences. Um, this team doesn't have that. And when you look through the middle of the park, as you said, Fred becomes the liability when he has too much time on the ball because he starts to overthink things. When Fred plays on instinct and just sh shuttles the ball around and does things quickly and doesn't try to take too much out of the ball, he's a very effective player. But McTominay, not particularly good in the ball. Bruno Fernandes, I think they're playing him too high. I think he's much better as an advanced eight rather than an out-and-out out ten. But you can't, you can't really get away with Fred, McTominay and Pogba as a midfield three. 
if if you want to play like a flat three. So they are sort of limited there. Pogba's the big question mark. He, for every one good game he has, and he did have a good game against Leipzig, it has to be said, he then just seems to float through the next two or three as if like, well, I, you know, I've shown what I can do. I, I don't need to do a whole lot more here. And it is a problem for them. I thought going into this game, if they were going to play the diamond and he wanted to get more creativity in a deeper role, surely the decision then was to play Pogba as the deepest player in that diamond. He's played there before for France, not so much in a diamond, but in that deepest role. And then you get Fred and McTominay ahead of him just as runners, as shuttlers, as guys who can press. They'll have a little bit of discomfort if they're asked to be creative. But if you can get Pogba dictating from deep, advancing the ball into the final third to Greenwood, Bruno and Rashford, I really felt like that was something that could have been more beneficial to them than playing Pogba in that position where he just floated out of the game. Yeah, I think that... The issue with Pogba is absolutely that there is absolutely no doubt in this world that there is supreme talent in the player. But talent isn't always the, the defining factor as to whether a player is a success at a club or or in a league or in a team or anything like that. It, it comes down to how you fit in the tactical structure, how much work you're willing to do to, to open up opportunities for your teammates and how much you're willing to demand the ball as well. Paul Pogba, for those that remember him when he played at Juventus before he moved back to Manchester United, he was a dynamic force in the midfield. He was somebody who would, the the ball just seemed to be attracted to him like a magnet. No matter where he was, the ball would find him and he would be able to drive past people, constantly driving forward. At Manchester United, he just seems to have developed this it's, it's, I'm not going to call it lazy because that's not the right word. It's lackadaisical. He gets the ball, he's in possession of the ball, and he just wants to have one more touch. He just wants to beat one more player. He just wants to do one more drag back or step over or just slow the game mm. down that one little bit more. And every time he does that, he slows everything that Manchester United do down. Against Leipzig, Manchester United were so good because they were able to play in transition so much. Leipzig took the game to them. Um, Manchester United hit the space behind the defensive line over and over and over again. You have Marcus Rashford playing on the half turn or on the turn in that way. He's going to cause you problems because of his pace, his ability on the ball and his ability to finish. If you're asking him to play in a slower game as this was for Manchester United when he is receiving balls more with his back to goal with defenders right up against him, he becomes far less effective because he can't then turn and then attack the penalty area. The combination play wasn't there between Rashford and Greenwood and and Bruno and that's because everything was slowing down and and the main culprit for everything slowing down for me was Pogba. The other option that United have is is Donny van de Beek, which has obviously been a huge piece of contention amongst United fans in recent weeks as to whether, as to why he's not getting a game. And, and you've heard over and over again, oh, he's not an Ollie signing. He's not somebody that Ollie wanted. Ollie doesn't know how to use him. And I'm not suggesting that Donny van de Beek should have played as part of the diamond, but Donny van de Beek is a midfield player who has a, such a unique profile and that he's not a player who will sit deep and look to dictate the play for you, but he is a player who will be that dynamic force that United needed in this match. He's a player who will make those runs past the defenders into the penalty area to receive the ball. He'll get touches in the penalty area and bring others into play. 
it just felt like as the game went on, there should have been a switch from Solskjaer away from the diamond. He needs to have a plan as in terms of how to change things when he goes into a game like this and, and what he would look to do if they were up against it. And he didn't bother doing any of that. He just stuck with the same system. And it failed over and over and over again for the same reasons. I think that that, for me, is the concern for Manchester United more than anything else. Um, touch it quickly on, on Arsenal. You talked about their recruitment and their need to add a midfielder. I think you're absolutely right. They need to add a more dynamic force. I mean, Thomas has been... He was fantastic. Um, and Nobody knew exactly what they were getting when they signed Thomas Partey because at Atletico Madrid, he had such a defined role in the team that it's difficult to see what he'll take, what he'll do when he's taken away from that rigid structure, if you like, that Simeone prefers. And now we're seeing a more dynamic box-to-box kind of player who's able to get the ball and recycle the ball and win the ball back for your team. What they need alongside him is Asibayos from two or three years ago when yeah. he was a, a real creative force for Real Betis. That, beside Thomas Partey at the moment, that player would be dynamic and it would open things up and it would cause problems centrally for teams. I mean, Lacazette will press all day long, but his ability in the hold-up play sometimes is lacking. He's not always as dynamic and sharp as he could be around the penalty area. Williams are a creative force if he gets the ball enough in the right areas and Aubameyang's a finisher. But they need something more. And I just think that if they could rediscover the way that Shibos played for Rio Betis, they would have that now. Yeah, yeah, I do I do agree. Um, I've, I've three last things that I want to want to get to on, on these two teams. Well, they're on United. Will Park, Arsenal. I, I totally agree. If they could get Betis era Sabayos into this team, I, I just think it would give them a whole new dimension. But on United, with Pogba, First things first, when he was at Juventus, he obviously, that last season in particular at Juventus, he was phenomenal. But his midfield partners at the time were Pirlo, Vidal, and Marquisio. All three very, very experienced. All three had been world-class, or in Vidal's case was world-class, or in Marquisio's case was a close to world-class player for a time when fit. They were also experienced leaders. They could talk him through games. He wasn't expected to be the man, but he could just show his full range of talent. Do you think, is it a case where at United, the expectation to be the man is weighing too heavily on him? I think that's a very, very good point. It's, it's, and it's not just that, it's it's everything. It's the price tag, it's the the battle, the very public battle that he had with Jose Mourinho when mm. Mourinho was the one that, that blinked first, if you like, and was removed and Pogba was thought to have won that and then that was Pogba ready to, to assume his leadership role within this team. But leadership on the football pitch comes in so many different ways and, and yes, United don't have that. Harry Maguire is not a leader. No. You can't you can't have a leader in the defensive line who makes as many mistakes as Harry Maguire does. Bruno Fernandes, perhaps a bit more of a leader. Bruno's got that. I really like it in captains when they've got the bit of the bastard about them. You've you've got to have that that fire to be a captain at the top level for me. And Harry Maguire doesn't have that. I don't think Pogba's got that. I mean, leadership. 
does a leader make that foul at the weekend to give away the penalty when afterwards Pogba's came out and talked about it and said maybe I'd run a little bit too much, I was a little bit out of breath, I hung my leg out a little bit and, and he bought the penalty from me. But does a leader make that mistake or does a leader just go through the ball and clear the ball? That's the point for me. I think that Fred's not a leader. McTominay is the one in the, the Manchester United squad at the moment who might develop into that. And as a Scotsman, I really, really hope that he does because he's got that that fire. But what he doesn't have then is the technical side of that. And as a leader and a captain at a top level club, do you have to combine the fire with the technical? Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of questions. I mean, there have been questions about Manchester United's recruitment now for years under Ed Woodward, and those questions aren't going away anytime soon. The, the whole Donny van der Beek thing is just strange. They've signed a player who has such a unique... And don't get Just so listeners know, I'm a huge fan of Donny van der Beek. I think that at Ajax, he was absolutely sensational. In the right team, he would be absolutely sensational. But at Manchester United, he doesn't fit anything that they're looking to do or anything that they're looking to play and that was the big signing from the, from this winter then the summer sorry you look at Ax Tellez who's who's came in and looked very good when United played a three at the back Tellez is a wing back Luke Shaw is a left-sided center back it's something Dave that you and I talked about weeks yeah. ago now when you're the one who said that Manchester United should, should switch to the 3-4-3 and they could make something really interesting happen. They did. It looked really interesting and then Ole went back again to a diamond from there. None of what's happening at United at the moment reflects joined up thinking or squad planning or squad building or or tactical thinking to me. It just seems to be everything's reactionary and it's one game at a time and that doesn't work at this level when you're playing against coaches like Arteta, who who obviously knew that the diamond was coming and he set his team up to negate the diamond and to attack the spaces that that gave you. And, and that's that was the key to the match for me. I want to come back to the tactical side in one sec, but just to follow up to question one, United have triggered the uh, automatic add-on year for Pogba. So it takes them off, you know, the pressure off of, this been the last year of his contract, but they are very much on the clock with Paul Pogba. He has just over a year and a half now left on his contract. I think it's very fair to say he has massively underperformed expectation, failed to live up to the price tag and the contract they gave him. Now, as I see it, they have three options. Number one, they can try and sell him this summer, this coming summer, They will almost certainly have to take a loss on him, which would be a little bit embarrassing. But it would be just an acceptance that it hasn't worked. We took a loss on Lukaku. Look how good our attack is now. We can move on. Just call it an era on Pogba. Wish him well. That's option A. Option B is you let him run down his contract and leave on a free, which is obviously a massive financial hit for the club, given the enormous transfer fee, the enormous agent fees they paid um, to Mino Raiola to make that deal happen. And obviously the investment in the contract, I think it was like 250 grand a week, and that will have been, you know, six years they'd have paid him that. So you're talking over 70 million in wages as well, plus bonuses and all the rest. That's option B. Option C, of course, is you give him a new contract and you would have to imagine, given 
who he is, given who his agent is, and given the way United have gone about business in recent years, you're probably talking about three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand a week in that new contract, which he's clearly not going to live up to. He's not a seventeen and a half to twenty million pound a year player at this point in his career. It just hasn't happened for him. He has all the talent to do it, but he hasn't shown it in all the time he's been there, and it's very unlikely from this point on that he will show it. So with those three options, what do they do? If it were me, I would take option A and I would look to sell. Mm. I think that you're absolutely right. You're going to take a loss. I think that previous to this season, the the market was always Real Madrid. Um, Pogba has came out before and said that he wants to play for Real Madrid. Real Madrid have said that they want Pogba. Zidane would have Pogba. And Tony Cruz is showing age now. I think that Pogba alongside Casemiro... A confident Pogba playing well alongside Casemiro, who's a fantastic player, would work well for Real Madrid. I think that the financial impact of COVID and of everything else that's been surrounding Spanish football for the last couple of years has perhaps put a dent in that because Real Madrid aren't going to be spending £100 million on a player in the near future. You'll be lucky if they're going to be spending £60 million on a player in the near future. And is £60 million enough to get Pogba? And the, the other sensible approach to me is Juventus because he still has such a good rapport with the Juventus fans who remember what he was before he left and what he was was world class. Mm. They would happily take him back. I think that Pirlo would take him back. You, you touched upon earlier on that Pirlo played with Pogba. Pirlo will think that he knows how to get through to Pogba and he thinks that he can make an impact in the midfield. So, But again, Juventus aren't going to pay that money. But what Sometimes I think a lot of people, and you've touched upon it here, but a lot of people don't seem to factor in when you talk about player transfers, is the question of wages. And you're absolutely right that they've been paying Pogba a fortune for his entire time at Manchester United. So do you look at the fact that you're taking a loss in terms of pure transfer fee, but you see that as a positive because you're then getting those wages off the book. That frees up a little bit of money that can be spread around and spent elsewhere. I think that Manchester United are getting to the point now where they need to add real quality in that area of the pitch. And if they were to give Pogba a new contract, they're they're not going to be able to do that because they'll be tied in so much with this contract for for Pogba going forward, which absolutely would top £300,000 per week because that's the only contract he would sign. I just... And you kind of end up with another De Gea situation where regardless of form, you kind of have to put him in the team. Yeah. What would you do? I I would sell him. I I would sell him. I think you have to decide what your pain threshold is. Because as you said, Real Madrid, and and as you talked about it, the idea of Pogba, Casemiro, and Federico Valverde in a midfield three is something I think could be very, very good. Because I think in Spanish football, he'd have a lot more time on the ball. You give him Casemiro, who is you know, one of the the very best holding midfielders in the world. You give him Federico Valverde and all the energy and dynamism and leadership that he brings and the fact that he's often willing to be the one to step up, even as the youngest midfielder there, he's often willing to be the one to step up, grab hold of some lads and say, look, this is not going well. Let's sort this out. Let's get something going here. That takes a lot of the pressure away from Pogba. So I do think I would go option A. Now, 
The third question I had for you, and this is kind of in two parts. We've seen United in the Champions League this year. Really, really good result away to PSG. I thought a quite a good tactical game plan. Great result at home to Leipzig. Again, a good tactical game plan. But in Premier League form, six games in, there's about 20 minutes against Newcastle you can point to and say, that was good. And all the rest of it has been largely awful. So, firstly, do you think Oli is maybe a little bit too focused on the Champions League and not spending as much time working on game plans for the Premier League? And also, looking at that Arsenal team, and in sp- particularly looking at Tomas, I can't help but wonder why United didn't try and sign him. Because for me... He would have been the perfect signing for United. They needed a holding midfielder. It was one of the two biggest needs that I thought they had going into the summer. And I think if you put Tomas into that United midfield, it just changes the dynamic. But they did sign Donny van de Beek. At the time, I felt it's a signing for the purpose of making a signing more than anything. But as you said, he was brilliant at Ajax. There has to be some sort of way to get him and Bruno into the same team. And I think if you added Tomas and maybe sold Pogba and you go Tomas is the deepest midfielder and then say play Fred and Bruno as your eights and Donny as your 10 I think as a diamond that could work now obviously Tomas is gone so you have to find somebody who could do a similar job now this might seem a little left field given who he plays for at the minute but I think someone like Zambo Anguisa as that holding player in fr- patrolling in front of your defense giving you that base with Fred and Bruno and then Donny as a diamond I do think that could work and there maybe is your path to get Bruno and Donny into the same team yeah I think that that's a very good idea I think that Anguissa is somebody who a lot of people are sleeping on at the moment but he definitely has the skill set that United need at the base of the midfield I think you're right nobody I mean Thomas Party. I keep changing what I'm calling him, but I'll just stick with Thomas Party. I think that his deal was done so late in the transfer window, so he was there. Everyone knew he had a release clause. Everyone knew that he wanted to come to the Premier League. He was there right up until the end. But only Arsenal seemed to be involved in the deal at any given point, and it just feels like too many people have slept in the fact that he could be a different player to what he was at Atletico Madrid, and has taken that risk on it there. I think. I think that what part of what really strikes me is that Donny van de Beek in this Arsenal side would actually perhaps solve quite a few of their problems because his runs, his vertical runs into the final third and past the striker would cause more problems and open up more passing avenues in the final third and possibly solve to an extent this this creation chance creation issue that that Arsenal have. And it just feels like he's at the wrong team. I think that there are there are so many different things at the moment at United that, that need to be addressed. If it were me, I would already be looking at replacements for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I get the impression that he's been told at some point at board level that he they want him to really emphasise and focus on the Champions League and do well in the Champions League. And you're absolutely right. He may be going into those games better prepared mentally than than he is in the Premier League. Because if you look at the Premier League form, you look at the table, 15th place after six games. Now, 
I I tend to have a rule of 10, I call it, that I don't start to pay real attention to the league table until 10 games in, and that's when you start to see teams that are that are where they, they perhaps weren't expected to be. But United need to do something domestically in order to address this, or they're going to find themselves not qualifying for the Champions League next season, regardless of how well they do, because they're not going to win the Champions League. But even if they have a run to the quarterfinals, semifinals, which the fans will enjoy and the board will like and the owners will like because the financial rewards are there, if you're then not in the competition next year, then what have you really achieved? Mm. I think Monday Night Football on Sky especially was interesting because Maurizio Pochettino sat there and, and said he's ready for a job, he's ready for a new challenge. And with his shadow still casting over the Premier League football, I just feel like Manchester United are going to be missing a trick if at some point they don't look to make that switch and put Pochettino in charge and, and give him the, the ability to to plan for the medium to long term at United and really build them back up into what they were 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I actually think that United could win the Champions League if they had Pochettino in charge because I think they have the attacking talent to do it. Um People will say United have played a game less, so 15th position is false. Their game in hand is against Burnley. So let's give them a 3-0 win in that game. That would put them on 10 points. They would be they would be 13th in the league. So it wouldn't be a massive improvement. And when you look at their results, they're very, very fortunate to get that win against Brighton. They really should have lost that game. So in truth, you could look at it and say, well, they should only have four points. <laughs> after their their six games so far. So it, it hasn't been good. Um, and before people tweet me about it, I, I understand that Anguisa is not as good a player as Pogba in terms of talent, but he is a more effective player than Pogba and could be more beneficial to United than what Pogba is. So while, yes, you could say it's a downgrade in terms of the player, in terms of what he can offer and how it could benefit the other players, we keep hearing about... This player could unlock Paul Pogba. Forget that. Anguisa could unlock three or four players. He could help elevate the level of Bruno, of Donny van de Beek, of Fred. He could help protect those central defenders and make them less of an issue. So that's why I would suggest somebody like him. But like, it doesn't have to be him. Right, moving on. Um, we saw Sheffield United play Manchester City this week. And Sheffield United, I think it's fair to say, Disastrous start so far. Uh, one point now from seven games. I think it's time to be worried. I thought they would be more than comfortable this season. But right now, I'm very, very concerned about their future as a Premier League club. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. I think that last season, Sheffield United were a real breath of fresh air. And I think that it's huge credit to Chris Wilder that, that we've seen so many teams switch to this idea of overlapping centre-backs that that obviously he made so famous in the Championship while they got promoted to the Premier League. I think that last season, teams really struggled to know what to make of Sheffield United, and, and that's in part, I think, where their success last term came from. This year, it feels a little bit like they've been figured out. And that's something that can happen. And, and at that point, you need to be able to add a differential into your team, either from a tactical or point of view or just from a player point of view. You need to add something extra to be able to to pose different questions, if you like. Because, I mean, 
in isolation, losing 1-0 at home to Manchester City is absolutely not an issue for any team in the Premier League. Any team can lose to Manchester City any given time because of the quality that they can put on the pitch and the quality of their coach. It's absolutely not the main crux of the issue here. I think for me, the crux of the issue is that the defensive structure is still very, very good. The midfield is still working hard and pressing and closing passive lanes and doing everything that we saw from them last year. But in the final third, they just seem to have taken a step backwards. And much as I really love Ryan Brewster, and I think that he was a fantastic signing who will score goals at this level, Ollie McBurney for me is where the issue lies. And again, he's a, a Scotland international, somebody who I've I've watched quite closely over the year. But he's got a very specific skill set that just doesn't seem to lend itself to this level of football for me. At the moment, they just seem to be to be lacking something. And for me, the recruitment was actually very good in the summer. And the signing of Max Lowe at left-back. Max Lowe is somebody who I think was one of the best attacking left-backs in the Championship last year. So it made a lot of sense for them to then upgrade and bring him in. The, the signing of Sander Berger last season was huge. And that was symptomatic of how far Sheffield United came over the first half of the season that they were able to get out and get a player like Sander Berger that, that so many other teams have been linked to. But something just seems to be missing, and it's difficult to put your, your finger on it. And much as I talked about earlier on the rule of 10 in terms of 10 Premier League games before you start to judge the table, you still can't get away from the fact that after seven games, Sheffield United only have one point in the bank. That's not sustainable over the, the course of the season. I think that at the moment, they're looking like a team who could quickly become cut adrift if this continues. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I, 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 like you, liked their recruitment. I really like Max Lowe. I think Jaden Bogle is going to be a very, very good player. Um, I, I thought getting in Ampadu on loan was an inspired move because I think he has the potential to be one of the better either centre-backs or holding midfielders in the Premier League, depending on which way he is developed. I like Brewster. I think he'll score goals. But it felt to me like they just didn't do enough. I love Sander Berger. I wanted to see them get another midfielder similar to his level. I don't think it would have cost the world. Baptiste Santa Maria moved for under £10 million. Um, Sangera moved for £11 million. One of that... Diallo, who went to Southampton. These type of players were available. I think Baptiste Santa Maria would have been a perfect fit as an upgrade on Ollie Norwood. That would have raised the midfield level a bit. The two wingbacks, I think we'll both will agree, immediately, maybe not automatic starters, but in you'd imagine by the end of the season, there's the starting wingbacks. Brewster will start up front. It just felt like they were maybe one piece short in the summer, that maybe there was just something else that they could have done and it didn't happen. And like you, I, I do think they've been figured out a little bit. And as well as been figured out from like, what are they going to do? I think they've sort of been figured out of, well, where's the weak link? Who is the weak link in that team? Who can we really pressurize and force into errors who can we expose defensively? And unfortunately for me, I look at the right-hand side of their defense with Baldock as the wing-back and Basham as the center-back. And Basham was their player of the year last year. But I do think that is the weakness in this team. Now, 
with Jack O'Connell out, the left has become just as exposed because Jack Robinson shouldn't really be playing at this level. And when you bring Stevens in to play him left side centre back, he is out of position. So I think those two areas, those flanking centre backs and the gaps in behind those wing backs, they are areas that I'm seeing teams expose in a week after week. And then the other thing that I'm noticing with, with Sheffield United, it, there's a little lack of real fire, like real urgency. Yes, you don't expect to beat Man City. Most teams in the league don't expect to beat Man City. So it's kind of, to me, a free hit. That, to me, is the type of game where you can say, you know what, let's just go for it. Let's just absolutely have a go at this. West Ham took points off them. Leeds took points off them. We're as good as them. We're probably better than them. Why can't we take points off them? And yet, they were so flat at the weekend. Yeah, they didn't seem to have any urgency at all. And you even look at the, the tactical changes that Wilder made. In the 81st minute, he took off Max Lover for an attacker player and Dave McGoldrick. But that was it. There was no other change that really had an attacking flavour. If you like, Ampadu and Osborne both came off from the centre of the midfield for Lindstrom and Norwood earlier on in the second half. But that's not changing anything. That That's a like-for-like like change in each case that is not adding anything to the game. I mean, then again, if you look at the bench, I guess that part of the problem for Sheffield United is that the other attacking options are Billy Sharp, who has had a fantastic career, but time is starting to get the better of him. And Ollie Burke, who, as much as he was highly rated and hyped when he moved to RB Leipzig years ago now, he, he's sadly not going to be the player that many people thought they were that he was going to be. He, he's still physically very good, very quick, but from a tactical intelligence point of view, he runs it too many dark alleyways, if you like. He, he loses the ball too often. Mm. I think that Sheffield just needs something extra. And it's not that the investment's not been there. Sander Berger wasn't cheap. No. Uh, Brewster wasn't cheap. And as much as the deal has a, a buyback clause, I believe, and, and Liverpool will likely take a take advantage of that at some point they have spent money but they've spent money and they still have Ollie McBurney as a starting centre forward in the Premier League and Ollie McBurney is for me a championship level striker I know that um, Jay Sockick Blades Analytic on Twitter who's a very intelligent guy about football and a big Sheffield United fan he's he's a, a fan of what Ollie McBurney takes to the to the field but for me they're just missing that extra something that you need at this level to be able to that differential that difference maker that teams need to have that's that's what they need to find somewhere from somewhere some player needs to come in and make a difference but in this game Manchester City were just far more comfortable than teams were playing Sheffield United last season when you had um Ferran Torres playing as a centre forward for goodness sake nobody saw that as being an option when they signed him we were all talking about which the wide players would come inside if if Jesus and Aguero were unavailable and and I was I was certain it would be Sterling but Ferran Torres was the option in this game and when you've got that kind of positional flexibility then you had Sterling and Mares in the wide areas and you're absolutely right that those two wide forwards were constantly attacking that space between the wing back and the wide central defender on their side of the pitch and that's where Sheffield United just seemed to be pinned back over and over again. They just need to find a way to add a little bit more quality I think. I still I have a I have a feeling they'll survive, but I don't think they'll survive by much. And if things don't change going forward, I don't think they'll survive in the league for long. And this is the kind of picture that we're going to see. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And 
like Jay is 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 very very good, and I do check his timeline after games to see what his his thoughts on on games are. And to me, his timeline, and it's not just him; it's the other Sheffield United fans that he interacts with. Uh, to me, they reflect the team. There's a lack of urgency. There's a there's an a, a, arrogance is the wrong word, but there seems to be an overconfidence that it will just sort itself out and they'll be fine. And I, like you, I still think they'll stay up, but it's not going to sort itself out just by magic. Something's going to have to change. Um, like I, th- they they will obviously get Lise Mousset back from injury, and that will be big. And him and Brewster, I think, will cause problems for a lot of teams. I think McBurney, like you said, he's a championship level striker. If you want him as a starting player, he's a championship striker. He will get you fifteen to twenty goals in the championship, a Premier League level. He's probably getting you four to seven. Now, he can be useful. He can be an absolute pain in the backside. He can be that big bully you put on with 15 to go if you're chasing a game as a plan B who can cause a little bit of havoc. He caused Liverpool quite a bit of trouble. If you just want to thump long balls in at him, that is where he can be effective, but you really can't be starting him. In the same boat as Sheffield United is the team who finished below them last season in 10th position in the Premier League. Burnley, also one point from their game so far, and they've only played six, but like I said earlier, their game in hand is against United. Everything we've said about Burnley, about Sheffield United rather, to me, reflects in Burnley. Teams have figured them out a little bit. Now, they didn't have have the investment in the summer, and that's a major issue. A couple of injuries has really hurt them badly, but there also is just a lack of desire, a lack of real urgency in that team at the minute. And I think Sean Dyche is one of the six or seven best managers in the league. I think he massively outperforms expectations, gets the most out of every player. But he doesn't seem to have a plan right now for where Burnley sit. No, I, I agree with that. I think that without Sean Dyche, the, the picture at Burnley would be very bleak indeed. I think that they're a yo-yo club who have stayed in a division because of the quality of their coaching over the last two or three years, there's been times, I mean, don't forget, a couple of years ago, they qualified for Europe. Burnley qualified for Europe. That's an outstanding job in terms of coaching and man management and getting the very best out of your squad. But what happened this pre-season from an ownership perspective has really, I think, affected Dykes. I mean, he lost players he wanted to keep. There were there weren't new contracts offered to players who were experienced and that he wanted to keep around the squad. There was no... And you just end up, I think, with with this team at the moment that are so one-dimensional. There's no urgency. There's no pace. Dwight McNeil aside, who is the only, for me, I mean, there was a lot of talk about James Tarkowski and big money offers from like so West Ham. But for me, Dwight McNeil's the one. He's the one who, who will bring significant investment into the club when he's sold because he will go for big money to a big side. Everything else doesn't look like it belongs at this level. Sorry, perhaps Nick Pope as well aside because I think he's a fantastic goalkeeper. But everything else that they're doing is so one-dimensional. Barnes and Wood are a good centre-forward partnership, but they're both effectively the same player. They do the same things. They they like to play in front of the central, the central defence of the opposition and hold the ball up and look for knockdowns and bring others to play that way. But there's just no 
additional threat from the two of them. And, and that was symptomatic of the game against Chelsea at the weekend when Thiago Silva, who you and I have already talked about, Dave, that we think that he will, he's, he's been good so far at Chelsea, but we think he will be caught out by teams who look to get at him and, and play pace around him. But in this game, he could have played in his slippers because yeah. Barnes, Barnes would just played in front of him where he was absolutely in his element completely comfortable throughout the game and that was with Ben Chilwell playing so high on the left hand side to provide width that there was no cover but even though Thiago Silva's pace is gone he still coped comfortably even the defensive solidity seems to be going a little bit from where it was and and that's I think where where that's worry yeah that's where they're going to be really concerned I think so going into this game you obviously, look, you know Burnley, like, if Burnley want to have a bit of pace in, in attack, Jay Rodriguez has to start. Um, Dyche does prefer Ashley Barnes and Wood as his starting pair. I do wonder if Jay Rodriguez's name was, like, James Smith, if Dyche would take more of a shine to him, because, you know, Sean doesn't like anything too fancy. Um, but, like, so you kind of knew there wasn't the pace up front to, to expose Thiago Silva that way. So I was looking at it, well, what other way can they do it? And the obvious way to me was that every time Burnley got the ball, Chris Wood should go and stand on on Thiago Silva, and they should absolutely bombard the life out of him with the long ball because he's never really seen anything like that. He's never going to have had defended against anything like that with Milan or with PSG. And yet Burnley didn't do it. They played the long ball a couple of times. One time it actually did work and Ashley Barnes ended up through on goal, made a mess of it. But to me, I would have just been peppering long balls in at Chris Woodall. I would have said, listen, I'm really sorry, but your job today is you're going to get 40 aerial duels against this fella. You've got about six inches of height on him and we're just going to thump the ball in every opportunity we get. You don't have to win them all, but go and cause him absolute nightmares. And they didn't do that. They didn't test him at all. Like you said, he could have played the game in his slippers. I think Burnley are in trouble. And I think Dyche is pretty much... I don't think he's unprofessional enough that he would just kind of walk out. But I I do think he's already got, in his mind, he's got his exit strategy. I think if a good job came up, I think Sean Dyche would walk. Now, my kind of pet favorite move at the moment, if I was Fulham... I would say goodbye to Scott Parker. I would go to Sean Dyche and say, look, we're, we're three points ahead of you. We're currently outside the relegation zone. And we have a much better team than they do. Like, yes, a lot of our players are here on loan, but we have much more talented players than they do. We have really good fullbacks who will get forward all day. We've got a good goalkeeper here on loan this year. We've got good centre-backs in, in Anderson and Tosin, who we, they brought in from City. They've got Zambo and Lamina in midfield, which I think Dyche... They've got Mitrovic up front, who is a Dyche-style striker, and they'll have money to spend in January. If I was Fulham, I would make that phone call right now. Now, whether Dyche would walk away with his team bottom of the league, I don't know. I think he's got a little bit more pride and a little bit more respect, a lot more respect, I'd say, for Fulham, or for, for Burnley rather than that. But if I was Fulham, I would make that phone call because I don't think Scott Parker is a Premier League manager. I think he's got potential, but I, I still think he's a long way short. And I do think there's a possibility to pluck Dyche right now because I think he's probably a bit fed up with the lack of investment year on year, despite twice getting them promoted, twice finishing top half. And as you said, he he brought Burnley to Europe. 
he took Burnley to Europe. They're the smallest club in the league by a considerable margin, and he brought them into Europe. Yeah, and that's a key fact for me. The fact, I mean, you're absolutely right. He he will be unhappy at the moment. There's no way that he's happy with the way the team are performing. There's no way that he's happy with the players that he's lost. There's no way that he's happy with the lack of investment going forward. But he's just not the kind of man who'll walk away from a job. I don't think he's so old school in that sense. And and that's no bad thing. I mean, the league needs variety. And Sean Dyche being there, you know what you're going to get with Sean Dyche. There's no question about it. What what he perhaps lacks a little bit in terms of tactical sophistication, he makes up for in his man management and his ability to to bring the very best out of the players that he has through his the way that he knits the team together. But I think that he's taken a battering over the last few months about the way that the club has been run. And I think that that's the point he will perhaps look. I would imagine it would be end of the season he would walk away. And you're absolutely right that a club like Fulham who are a little bit more upwardly mobile. They might yo-yo a couple of times over the next couple of years, but the key is that you allow him to have money to invest to get the players that he wants that will fit the way that he wants to play football. If Burnley were willing to do that, I don't think there's a scenario where he would leave necessarily because he's never going to be approached by a top six club because of his his persona and the way that he's perceived in the media, they, they just wouldn't do it as much as he would probably thrive if they did. I can't see them ever doing it. A club like Fulham would be attractive at the moment, but if Burnley were able to to give him the promises and give him the investment, he would stay. If oh, they don't, yeah. if they if they don't do that, then absolutely Burnley Fulham would be a, a very attractive proposition, especially with Mitrovic. I think that Sean Dyche could do an awful lot with Alexander Mitrovic. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. I I think because he does really have like control over so much at Burnley, which is is rare in the modern game. I, I think if they were willing to back him and, and invest, I, I do think he would stay. And I do think he would make them a consistent top 10 team. Every year, I think they'd be top 10 because I, I think he just rings the most out of every single player. I think he's obviously got a very set way of playing and he knows how to get the players in for his system. Like, I don't think Dale Stevens is a Premier League player at this point, but for the the blueprint of what Dyche wants to do, he fits in that midfield. He's neat and tidy, doesn't do anything spectacular, but doesn't make mistakes, doesn't give the ball away cheaply, just keeps things ticking over. Um, he has come close to leaving in the past. He's interviewed for Palace. He interviewed for Everton. I believe he turned down the offer of the Everton job because it was mid-season and he didn't want to walk on... Um, and want to walk away on on Burnley. He lost out on the Palace job, I think, to Frank De Boer. But so he has considered it in the past. But yeah, I, I do agree. I do think, given his old school nature, given how much he has put into that club at, at Burnley, it, he probably would hesitate massively and, and be unlikely to leave mid-season. But then you show him the bag of money he's going to get, and you show him what the plans for the club are. It might make him waver. He might also just look at it, though, and think, yeah, Fulham would be nice and London, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's not really me. And I think maybe I can get a better job. I think there's a scenario where the Villa job comes up in a year or the Newcastle job comes up in a year or eventually Bielsa will leave Leeds and that job's available. And those are the type of jobs that maybe would be more attractive to him as in truth. 
those are three very, very big clubs. Leeds, Newcastle and Villa are massive clubs. And I think while you're right, Dyche wouldn't get one of the big six jobs, in that kind of next group of the four biggest clubs, which I would say are Everton and those three, I think he could potentially get, you know, one of those jobs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that... I think that Crystal Palace will absolutely be kicking themselves that they they appointed Frank De Boer over Sean Dyche because Sean Dyche would probably still be there now and, mm. and still be doing a very good job. I think you're right. I think that Newcastle especially is the one out of those that I think would be really, really interesting because of that fan base. And again, though, you've got to question whether the investment would be there, I guess. But there are certainly clubs in the Premier League who will be looking at Sean Dyche as a, a viable option because of the job that he's done at Burnley, and rightly so. I just, I'd love to see what he could do with money. I really would love to see what he could do with real investment. And like, I'm not saying he would have the same type of success, but you could see him being almost like a, you know, a lesser version of Simeone in terms of the style of play, being a properly aggressive team, being a team that does challenge every year, maybe not for Champions League, but for Europa League football if he had real money behind him. Um, because like he got, he got Burnley into Europe. It, can, it cannot be said enough how big an achievement that is. Right, we'll park that and finish off on this. This coming weekend, Lee, there's a couple of really exciting games coming up. Um, the two I wanted to focus in on, uh, Leicester v Wolves. What do you expect to see in this one? Leicester coming off, I think, a brilliant performance against Leeds. Wolves have found a little bit of form, winning games, not necessarily playing at their best, but they are winning games. They're grinding out results. What do you expect from this one? Much as this possibly isn't the most high-profile game of the weekend, I think this is potentially the most interesting. What a game this has the potential to be. I think that Leicester were brilliant in beating Leeds. There's no two ways about it. But it was such an odd game. Leeds made so many mistakes in that first half, and, and Leicester were absolutely clinical and don't forget a few years ago when Leicester won the league they did it on the back of the fact that they were completely clinical when the opposition gave them opportunities the same thing here I think that if they're to line up in the same way I think it's very interesting that they use James Justin in that right-sided centre-back role because he is so flexible. There was one point against Leeds where he, he won a 50-50 and then skipped past two Leeds players that were trying to press him and, and Leicester were just on the front foot and that's mm. a really interesting thing for me. Wesley Fofana as the, the centre of the, the back three. He just looks like he is made for the Premier League, doesn't he? I, I tweeted during the game that He's so, so good at this level and such a front foot defender. He looks to go and win things. And I think there's still a doubt as to whether he, he's great in possession, but out of possession, and that's what you want a defender to be, he is fantastic. I think it's going to be really interesting against Wolves because you're going to see a game where I don't think either team will be that bothered about having the ball. Neither of them strike you as being really possession heavy, possession orientated. They, they both look to, to play in transition a little bit and the systems will match up against one another if Brendan Rodgers does the same thing as he did against Leeds with the, the three at the back and then Harvey Barnes and, and Dennis Pratt or, or somebody else coming in to attack that space around Jamie Vardy. But Jamie Vardy alone strikes the fear of God in defences just because he's so clinical and so effective. And now that he's kind of not 
only focused all the time on scoring goals. He had that moment against Leeds where he set up Harvey Barnes for the first goal. Two years ago, Jamie Vardy doesn't make that pass. He looks to shoot. Regardless of the angle, he looks to shoot. So he's he's still developing as a player at his age, which is really interesting. And now you have Wolves who have such an interesting style. They don't press. They, they're not that bothered about having a lot of possession, but what they will do and what they are effective at doing is finding those passing angles at the feet of the front three. And then Daniel Podence and Pedro Neto and, and the Dama Traore, if he plays, just have pace to burn and direct running and they threaten defensive lines. Ryan Nuri came in for, for Wolves in the last game at left wing back and he is going to be a sensational talent if he can get over his injury problems from last year. I think that Wolves have got a real deal there. I think if I was a betting man, I would probably put my money on Leicester to win the game just because of how well they played against Leeds, but it could go either way. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree and I, I want to see Jamie Vardy's long-form birth cert. I'm going full Donald Trump on this. I want to see his birth cert. I don't accept that he's turning 34 in uh, in January. Just don't accept it at all. Um, I think he is going to try and isolate Connor Cody because what we see with Wolves defensively is that Cody does tend to hang a couple of yards deeper than his centre-back partners because he doesn't have the recovery pace. And I think Vardy will take advantage of that and just punish them. Um, Harvey Barnes is also lightning quick as well and I, I thought it, he was brilliant against Leeds as well and Yuri Tielemans was brilliant and there was a whole bunch of them but Vardy's performance was just sensational you highlighted James Justin uh, I, I, I adore that player I, I thought when he was at Luton he was destined for for England England honours I think he will play for England I think he's a very very good player can play a, a multitude of positions right back, left back, centre back in a three. I think eventually he'll be able to play centre back in a two. I still haven't figured out how Bournemouth looked at Luton, bought a right back from Luton and it wasn't him. Yeah. When Liverpool looked at him, I was really hopeful that they'd buy him as the backup to Alexander-Arnold. Leicester got themselves a bargain. I think they paid £6 million for him. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's tremendous recruitment. Fafana's a, a don. He's going to be great. You look at like, look at the players they have to come back. Their entire back four has to come back in. Pereira, Evans, Soyuncu, and Castanier. Will Fendidi has to come back in. James Madison came off the bench, but he has to come back in. Cengiz Under can work his way into the team. This Leicester squad is exceptional. I think from a first, like, if you put everybody's best 11 up against each other, I think other than Liverpool, City, and maybe Spurs, I think Leicester probably have the fourth best best eleven in the league, and they've got good depth behind it. My question is: is on Rogers? Is he tactically consistent enough? He sometimes tends to struggle if results start to turn against him. He t- struggles to turn it round, as we saw last season. But I, I fancy Leicester to win this game. Um, I think Wolves have issues that certain teams will will pick apart, and I think Leicester are one of them. And I find the the exclusion of Adama Traore this so far this season to be very very strange. Um, he had such a great season last year. I know he got COVID in preseason, but he did start the season in the team. Has since been dropped out, and I do think Wolves kind of miss just that incredibly direct threat that he gives them. Yeah, definitely. I think that Traore is 
it's such an interesting profile. And I saw, uh, saw it written somewhere, I think today or yesterday, that there's a school of thought now that perhaps Wolves should have taken advantage of the interest in Traore in the summer and perhaps looked to sell because while his, his the hype around him was high, his price would have been astronomical. You've got a player who's now a full Spain international who has that, like you say, the ability to absolutely... He, he just terrifies defenders, not because just because of the fact that he's quick, but because he's so direct and he just turns and heads straight at goal from wherever he is. I have to say that from a, a game strategy point of view, I absolutely love the fact that he started to, to oil up his biceps because he's sick of defenders grabbing onto him. I think that that's one of the, the best developments that I've seen. I, I, I don't envy the, the Wolves member of staff who has to apply that for him. Though, before he Imagine how it. much it takes. Like His arms are <laughs> massive. <laughs> he, he came out and said that he doesn't do weights either, which I'm not entirely sure about. He claims that everything's just genetic, that he's that size, but he wasn't that size when he he came through no. Barcelona and moved to Middlesbrough. He wasn't that size in terms of his biceps. So there's definitely something there. But I think underrated as well is the way that Adama Traore links up with Raul Jimenez, who is the, the focal point for Wolves and the key player in the attack. I think that as much as I think Daniel Pedence is really impressed with his direct running and ability to get at defenders, Pedro Neto perhaps slightly less so. There, there is a player there, but I think I would still prefer Adama Traore. And I think that I think that if you asked Royal Jimenez, he would prefer to have Adama there with him because of that ability the two of them have to to understand one another's game. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think Neto, d- definitely there's a player there and I think he's going to be a very good player in 18 to 24 months. But right now, there's no question you, Adama should be in that team. And I think that balance of him and his brutish pace, his power, his directness and his ability to link with, with Jimenez added to the subtlety and the creativity of Pedence and the movement of Pedence, I think that's something they could really, really uh, thrive on. Like you, I, I think maybe they should have looked to sell Adama um, in the summer, but I suppose when they were selling uh, Jota, maybe they didn't want to lose both of them. Um, speaking of Jota, Liverpool play Manchester City this weekend in what, in a normal season, you would look at and say, well, this is the two best teams in the league. And while Liverpool are top, they haven't always played well in this Premier League season. City have underwhelmed to an extent. Um, they did get the win, obviously, at the weekend, but they currently sit 10th with a game in hand. And admittedly, if they win that game in hand, it will push them into fourth place. But I don't think anyone could say that City have had the start they would have wanted with the hammering they took against Leicester, the the draw against Leeds where they really should have lost, and then the draw against West Ham. Yeah, I think that it's been it's been really slow for Manchester. I, th- I don't think there's any doubt about that. They they've really struggled to get going, and part of that is because it's been such a batshit crazy season so far. But at the same time, they're not the same team that we've seen over the last few years in the Premier League. They they're not the same team who were absolutely dominant three seasons ago and, and set records, and then they're certainly not the same team that picked Liverpool to the title by a point. There seems to be something missing, and for me, it's in the midfield. I think that Rodri is a, a very good player. He's a very serviceable player. He's a he's a Pep Guardiola player, but he's perhaps not what Manchester City need. They they need that little bit of steel in that position because they're so attacking elsewhere, and he doesn't offer that. I think this game is going to be so interesting because for the first time in the last three or four years, we don't know exactly what's going to happen from a tactical point of view. 
every other time it's been about Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola and 4-3-3 and, and just going at each other and trying to find the edge wherever they can in terms of players' qualitative superiority or or how somebody making a mistake that opens up or a set play that, that opens up and, and makes something happen. But what will Liverpool do in this game? Will they stick with Yogo Yota? Very difficult to drop him for a game after he scores a hat-trick in the Champions League for you. But where does that leave Roberto Firmino, who... I, I understand the frustration of some Liverpool fans with Firmino and his role because they see a number nine who perhaps isn't contributing in terms of goals as much as other players are, but he's so important to the way that Liverpool play in general with his willingness to drop off the front line. And that, for me, is why the 4-2-3-1 was so interesting because it was a 4-2-3-1 and not a 4-3-3, but if you actually looked at the shape, very little changed. Because Mohamed Salah still played centrally as he does from the right-hand side. Firmino still played deeper off the front line as he does anyway. The only difference for me was that instead of Jordan Henderson or Trent trying to offer width on the right-hand side, you had an extra attacker there, which makes a lot of sense for Liverpool. I think going into this game, we might see the 4-2-3-1. I think that we might see Klopp trying to, to put a little bit more pressure on the Manchester City back line. And the 4-2-3-1, with that, that added attacking player in the attacking line, might prevent the fullbacks from Manchester City being so advanced. And against Sheffield United at the weekend, I think one of the most notable performances from, from Manchester City was that of Joe Cancelo, who played left-back, but also played centre midfield. And at times he was a number 10, and other times he was a left-winger. And then at one point, I think I was watching the game, he was playing as a nine. And I had no idea what was going on and what Cancelo was supposed to be doing, but he seemed to be having a great time doing it. I think that <laughs> he did seem to have an awful lot of fun, and that's a couple of games in a row where he's done that. Yeah, and I think the same to true of Kyle Walker, who of course scored the goal. I think that what Liverpool look to do is find a way to isolate and prevent them from getting too far forward. I think that's where the game will be won and lost for for Liverpool in this game. And, and again, if I was a betting man, I think my money would be on Liverpool, especially after last night's performance against Atalanta. Yeah, they were very, very good last night. It must be said, they really, really exposed the weaknesses in that Atalanta team. I I kind of feel like Firmino has to start against City. Even though he has been out of form, he, he does always play well against them. He always causes them problems. And that he's done that before when he's been, quote-unquote, out of form. So, yeah, I do think there is a high possibility of of the 4 2 three, one. Um, Maybe Klopp will change it up a little bit and play Mane right side and Jota left side as opposed to the way they've played in the last couple of games where Jota's played on the right. So I do think Jota gives you a little bit more when he plays left side in that system. And Mane is more diligent in his defensive work because he knows the system and knows what's expected more. So if Joe Canseo is going to play left back and is going to be tasked with, you know, being a playmaker from that position, I think Mane is better suited to closing him down and taking him out of the game and also exposing the massive flaw in, in Joe Cancelo's game, which is despite being a fullback, he really can't defend all that well. Um, I think it is, it's a big game, obviously. It has potential title connotations even at this early stage. But, you know, a City win and with their, win, with their game in hand, which is against Villa, they could put themselves above Liverpool. But Liverpool will look at this game and say, right, well, if we win here, 
we're eight points clear of City. And while they have a game in hand, that still gives us a five-point buffer. And we still believe they're our biggest challenge this year. Despite Leicester's good form, despite Spurs' good form, City will still look at, or Liverpool will still look at City as their biggest challengers this year. So, you know, there will be quite a bit on this game. Anything else that you wanted to highlight or have you anything to plug before we go? No, I think that we're, we're looking forward to the next round of fixtures. I think that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the league start to settle down and then we can hopefully see some teams emerge as, as potential challengers to Liverpool and Manchester City, who will absolutely still be the top two for me, but looking forward to it. Follow Lee on Twitter at FM Analysis. Follow me at Two Footed Pod. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle and thank you to Fox Hunt for our title music. I'll be back tomorrow. Take care, he says. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.